There are three things that Luke gives us in this passage and I want us to consider this morning. The first is God's arrangement of the Savior's birth. The second is the angel's announcement of the Savior's birth. And the third is the shepherd's acknowledgement of the Savior's birth. So if you like to take notes or you like to have headings, arrangement, uh, arrangement announcement, and acknowledgement. <clears throat> Excuse me, y'all. I got something that just popped into my throat and I am having a hard time speaking up here. <clears throat> in the opening verses of Luke chapter 2, Luke gives us a very simple, unadorned, matter-of-fact account of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. An event that we heard earlier was prophesied some 500 years before by the prophet Micah. As you read Luke's description, it almost seems a little bit underwhelming. It seems as if it doesn't kind of fit in there. Or it's a little bit, little bit uh, understated amidst all the angelic appearances, amidst the miraculous pregnancies, amidst the grand announcements and songs of praise that come on either side of Jesus' birth. But in the, in the details of Luke's short description, we find that the time and the place and the manner of Jesus' birth are far from insignificant, far from, from just coincidental. Luke's note that these things happen in the days of Caesar Augustus's reign not only marks for us Jesus' birth at a particular time and place in history, but it also serves as a stark contrast for us between an earthly king whose birth was heralded as good news and whose reign was characterized as bringing peace throughout all the Roman Empire and the divine king of kings whose birth was truly good news of great joy and who would bring lasting peace throughout all the earth. I'm talking about Caesar and Jesus. Housed in the Berlin Museum in an ancient tablet from, found in the Greek city of, of Prien, or Prien, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, now located in western Turkey, there's a, a stone tablet that contains a portion of a decree that was issued in 9 BC by the proconsul of the, of the, prov, the Roman province of Asia. And this decree is seeking to bring honor to Caesar Augustus, who's referred to here in Luke's gospel, by having the, the, the calendar year changed to begin on Caesar's birthday. And listen to what is part of that decree. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has already done, and since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings for the world that come by reason of him, from his birth, a new reckoning of time must begin. Notice that Augustus is a gift of the goddess Providence, or Providentia as she was called. And he's filled with virtue, sent as a savior. 
He's referred to as the god Augustus. Augustus means majestic or great. And his birthday is the beginning of good tidings. The Greek word on that tablet is, is euangelion, the good news, the gospel, same as is translated here in Luke's gospel and throughout the rest of the Bible. The hope is that he would end war, arrange all things in a manner surpassing all previous rulers and, and all who would come after him. And thus this, this inscription issued just a few years before Jesus' birth proclaims the ruler of the Roman Empire at the time as the one who is a savior, a bringer of peace, whose birth is heralded as good news. Now, we might not necessarily assign our human rulers godlike status or herald them as, as saviors of the world, but how often do we look at them like that? How often do we, do we look at a particular, the reign of a particular president or the government of a particular administration with a kind of, of salvific expectation? Putting our hopes for things like, like justice or peace or happiness or prosperity in the, in the hands of the human rulers who lead, rule over us. Well, it's against this, this background of just such a, a, a human reign and, a, and, a, and a, a human ruler and the expectations around him that Luke tells us of the arrangements that God makes for Jesus' birth. Luke could have just said, you know what? He was born in Bethlehem, just like the prophet Micah told us 500 years before. But he widens our view to, to see that that God's timing for, for Jesus' birth comes during the rule of another great king who was proclaimed as a savior and lord by the people who would establish peace throughout the land. However, Augustus' rule was not a just rule and his peace was not a settled peace, nor was it a lasting peace. The Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, was a forced peace. It is a peace of, of power through might. It was a peace of conquered lands and, and subjugated peoples. And it is this rule of human power and authority that leads Caesar to actually issue his own decree that, that everyone in the known world at that time would pack up their stuff, travel back to where they were born, in order to be numbered and to extract taxes from his subjects. And unbeknownst to him, or to the rest of the world at that time, God is working through the order of this earthly ruler to, to sovereignly arrange getting this young couple from the small town in Judea and, and to the, in, called Nazareth into the little town of Bethlehem, where Micah had prophesied, this greater ruler was to be born. And so the contrast that Luke gives us here is very intentional. While Caesar Augustus reigned supreme in Rome, surrounded by wealth and power, dressed in fancy robes and, and displaying the pow his power by numbering all his subjects, Jesus is quietly entering the world, being laid in a manger in a far off corner of the empire, being wrapped in birth cloths. How fitting that God in his sovereign providence uses a man who is, who is proclaimed to be a God and savior of his people to disrupt the lives 
and shift the movement of an entire empire to bring about the promised arrival of one who is truly God and yet becomes man. Augustus, seeking to maintain a temporal peace that will not last, makes a way for the true prince of peace to be born. And so God arranges sovereignly and providentially in in great detail the birth of this Savior. And he carries out his decree that a Savior, his ruler, will be born in Bethlehem through Caesar's decree for a world census. And Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph went there and very plainly, he says, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Interesting that from the very beginning, the world has no place for the king of kings. This event of worldwide significance, of timeless impact, it takes place and no one except this Young couple, forced to bed down with animals, knows about it. There's no international media coverage, no marketing blitz, no viral spread across social media. The king of the universe, the long-awaited Messiah, God in the flesh, has just arrived on the scene and nobody knows. (laughs) So how will the news get out? Well, God starts with some common, unsuspecting shepherds going about their daily lives of tending the sheep. And again, Luke's details here point us to something, something greater in, in, in understanding the coming of this one. The glad tidings of this Savior's birth is not announced to the world through, a, through an edict etched in stone, but through an angel appearing to a few shepherds at work in the fields. And Luke again says rather matter-of-factly, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Didn't appear to the whole world. Didn't appear to write the birth announcement across the skies, which he easily could have done. God's announcement of the Savior's birth was very personal. The angel appeared to the shepherds. The angel spoke to the shepherds. The angel's message was to the shepherds. The good news of the gospel is not just given to the the world in general, but it's God's message to, to you and to me personally and to those whom by his grace he is he is pleased to hear it. It's a personal announcement. Unto you, the least, the lowly, the lost, a savior is born. Now, this surely surprised the shepherds a bit since they were not the kind of people whom anybody, much less God, typically stopped to talk to. (laughs) They were social outcasts. They were considered unclean by the religious establishment. They were the lowest class in society. Why would God speak to them? Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to man's wisdom. His ways are not our ways, and he reveals himself to those that we might least expect. So it's understandable that when the angel appeared, they were not just surprised, they were literally afraid with great fear. Luke says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. In other words, they were confronted in some manner with the presence of God's holiness. 
And as they stood there, surrounded by God's glory in the presence of this angel, they were, as, as Linus puts it again in the, in, in, in the King James Version, sore afraid. <laughs> now, most of us will never encounter an angel of the Lord during our lives, but we know what it is to have great fear. We live in a fallen, broken world, and we're beset with fears, as were the people of Jesus' day. Fear of an uncertain future. Fear of being abandoned or rejected. Fear of losing a job or losing your health or losing your family. Fear of not having, <clears throat> excuse me, not having enough money or failing a test or not being liked or accepted. You can just fill in the blank. As sinners, we have all the more reason to fear. Fear of being exposed, fear of how others will, will perceive us, fear of having to own up to our sin before others and worse yet, before a holy God. And ultimately, we all have a fear of dying and the death that awaits every one of us in the future. So isn't it appropriate that the first announcement of the birth of Jesus and the gospel from the angel's mouth begins, fear not. Fear not. The glad tidings of great joy to you and to me this morning is that we need not fear. We need not fear. Why? Because unto you, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, is born a Savior who is Christ, who is the Lord. He is a Savior who's come to, to rescue you from the consequences and the condemnation that sin brings and to ultimately to, to walk with us through the struggles and the trials of this life. He is a Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, God's anointed one who has come to, to redeem you, to set you free from the power of, of sin. And he is the Lord. He is God himself come to reconcile you, not only to himself and give you life and peace with God, but to, to one another as well, to rule in and over us with righteousness and justice. And so in the announcement of the birth of the Savior, God uses similar language, similar extravagant language that's used in the, in the inscription to honor the Roman emperor. And in making that announcement to these lowly shepherds, he's saying something about the nature of this Savior's rule and the real nature of his power. He is presenting the, the, this humble, helpless babe wrapped in swaddling clothes as the very antithesis of the prideful, powerful human rulers. Caesar reigned by conquering lands and, and counting his people, and Jesus will reign by conquering sin and counting himself as the needed sacrifice for his people. And so it's fitting that the arrangement for the king of kings' birth comes at the decree of an earthly king. And it's equally fitting that the announcement of his birth in a manger in the city of the shepherd king David comes to lowly shepherds who are watching over their sheep. In Christ, God comes to humble the proud and exalt the humble. And he comes not just as a sovereign king to rule the world with truth and grace, but he comes as a shepherd king who will lay down his life for his sheep. 
And so God uses a powerful earthly king to arrange for the birth of Jesus. And he chooses humble shepherds to announce the birth of the good shepherd in a manger. And after announcing the good news, the angel says in verse 12, This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I don't know about you, but the last time I checked, an angel of the Lord appearing in a sky filled with heavenly hosts was a pretty good sign by itself. I think I would have just said, that's good. That's good enough for me. I'm sure the shepherds didn't need to be convinced at this point. But what about later on? If all the shepherds had to go on was the appearance of the angels to them with this news, eventually doubt may have creeped in. People who heard their account would have said, you were just under the stress of the job. (laughs) The night air was getting to you. I'm sure you uh, just probably thought you saw something that you didn't really see. And in the absence of anything more than that, they might begin to think that that was indeed the case. Did this really occur? A shepherd's witness was not considered reliable in any case or testimony. But God didn't leave it to just the announcement by the angel. He provides evidence. He says to them, go and see. Go and see for yourself. There will be a baby lying in a manger. And again, I just love how God works out the details. There there were probably more than just one baby in Bethlehem at that time, I'm guessing. And though it probably wasn't a big place, but but surely there were were, uh, more than one baby there. But not many would be born where shepherds would be welcome to just come and visit. This one, however, was right where they could find him. In an animal stall, in a manger. And they didn't waste any time. They said, let's go see this thing which the Lord has told us about. They wanted to to acknowledge, to, to confirm, to accept that what they had heard was true. And so they go with haste. They didn't wait for the next shift to come on. They didn't send someone out to check it out and bring back a report. They dropped everything they were doing. They headed to Bethlehem to see for themselves. And when they got there... They found it just like God has said it would be. Imagine that. The shepherds were not content to go on the angel's word alone. And you know, some of us have a faith based simply on what other people have told us. Maybe you have based your faith just on the things that you have heard kind of randomly about who Jesus is, but you have yet to actually check it out for yourself. You have yet to to delve into the scriptures and see if this thing that you have heard is actually real. You see, God has validated the revelation of Jesus Christ through the eyewitness and and the, the writings of the scriptures. And God calls us to come and to see for ourselves. He says, a Savior has come to you. He is Christ the Lord. Pick up the Bible and see it for yourself. See if it is true. The good news of Christ's coming is not just announced to us, but it must be acknowledged. It must be accepted by us. It must be believed. It must be trusted And so the shepherds go and they find things just as they have been told. And then what do they do? 
as I mentioned to the children, they go and they tell others. They made known the saying that had been told them about the child. See, Christmas affords us a great opportunity, a great opportunity to share the good news of Christ, unlike any other time of the year, well, maybe except for Easter. But even Easter has this distinct Christian feel about it, whereas Christmas, so many people are hearing and, and, and into the spirit and don't, of, of the season, but they don't know what it's all about. And it provides us this great opportunity to share the news that a Savior has been born and he is Christ the Lord. The message is clear. God now calls us to bring that announcement to the world. And the shepherds begin fulfilling, in essence, the Great Commission 30 years before Jesus ever tells anybody to go into the world and preach the gospel. The first receivers of the good news were the first proclaimers of it. So why do we find it so hard to follow the shepherd's lead? Why do we eagerly pursue in our lives seeking to, to live for and to love like our King Jesus, but we often are hesitant, we often balk at seeking to lead others to him? Maybe we don't feel like we're qualified enough. Maybe you're afraid of what people will, will think of you or how they will react to what you say or, or how they'll even react just to you personally. Perhaps you don't really think that God could use someone like you. Maybe with stuff going on in your life to actually change someone else's life. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. These shepherds were not the most upright of saints. They were not trained evangelists. They were used to talking to sheep, not to people. And when they did talk to people, most of those people wouldn't give them the time of day. And yet what they heard and what they saw was such good news that they could not help but tell others about it. When we have good news of great joy like this, we have no choice but to tell others Heck, the shepherds didn't even understand all the implications of what was happening. They just knew this baby had been born who was Christ, the Lord, a Savior. They didn't know anything about how it would happen. And God does not require you or me to have a a theological degree or to be able to walk someone through the the ordo salutis in order to, to explain what it means to be, to know the Savior. God calls us to lead others to the king by acknowledging him simply as Savior and Lord with our lives as well as with our lips. To tell them simply who Jesus is and what he has come to do. God will take care of the rest just like he did with the shepherds. shepherds. For all the wonderful things that had happened to them, Over the past few days, Luke is finally careful to note that the shepherds had to go back to work on Monday morning. They returned to their fields. When Christmas is over, the holidays are gone. We're back into the world and the routines of life. They were still shepherds having to face the toil of long, cold hours on the job with dirty, smelly sheep. And this would be a test for them. As the bright light of God's glory faded back into the the darkness of a desert night, as the voice of the heavenly host was suddenly replaced by the constant bleeding of, of needy sheep, 
as the tranquil minutes of that uh, of of being with that precious baby turned into grueling hours of watching and protecting the flock how would the shepherds react Luke says they returned celebrating glorifying and praising God for all he had heard and seen just as it had been told them their circumstances were not necessarily changed by Jesus's coming but their hearts and their lives were and their attitudes and their outlook within those circumstances had become had been radically transformed into worship they went to work worshiping Jesus comes ultimately uh, to, 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 to save and to, and to reconcile and to produce those who will worship, who proclaim glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And so as we go about our daily lives in the knowledge of this good news of, 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 of joy, we can do so worshiping God, praising him. And in the end, ultimately, the birth of only one ruler has truly changed human history in the course of time forever and ever. There's only one Savior. There's only one God. There's only one bringer of peace who is and will remain unsurpassed in all of history. The mortal reign and the kingdom of Caesar Augustus, whom, who, whom Luke records for us here at the beginning of the gospel, who established a temporary peace by, by conquering of armies and the crucifixion of his enemies, lies buried under the dust of human history. And it's only displayed now in fragments of stone and relics housed in museums or recorded for us in history books. And such is the faded glory and feudal peace of all human rulers and earthly empires, including our own little kingdoms that we seek to manage and control. But the eternal reign and kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who established a lasting peace through the, the conquering of sin and death and, and being crucified for his own enemies, shines brightly. It shines brightly. You know where? In the living stones of his church, of his people, of you and I, called together and called to be in communion with him and with one another. The humble, the lowly, the least, who have received and have believed the good news of great joy. Jesus' birth still marks the beginning of a new era on all of our calendars. But more importantly, it marks the good tidings of, of good news and new life in our hearts. As God arranges the events of the world, he arranges our lives in order to, to hear and receive and to bring this good news that will be for all the people who will acknowledge and accept and worship the king. And so if you're here today and you've never really heard and seen for yourself the implications of this good news, God invites you now. To come and see. Come and see as we gather around the table and see what Christ has done for us and partake of the grace which he has for us through his birth and life and death and resurrection. Receive him. Acknowledge him as Savior. 
as Christ the Lord. And for those of us who do so, he invites us again to come and see and taste of God's bountiful grace through the glorious redemption and reign of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Here at this table, Jesus invites us to come again. To come, all ye unfaithful, who are made faithful by his work on the cross. To come and acknowledge and partake of the good news of great joy that Christ was born, that Christ has died, and that Christ has risen again. That we might have true peace with God and with one another, and that we might have eternal life in his kingdom, which shall never end. Let's pray together. Father, as we do come now from your word spoken, the good news proclaimed through the angels in heaven, through the announcement and response of the shepherd, through the witness of your apostles and disciples, and ultimately through the continued proclamation of your word given to us in the scriptures. Lord, we also come now to your word visibly portrayed for us. The sacrifice of your son Jesus, who was born in a manger, who lived his perfect life in a way that none of us ever could, who offered himself up on the cross for us, and who was raised again from the dead and who now rules and reigns with righteousness and with justice and with truth forever. Lord, we come now at your invitation to receive what you have for us. And in receiving that, Lord, I pray that you would also make us those who go out from here and share that good news with others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.